This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Great to see you. Let me just extend my welcome if you're a visitor. And um, I'm going on holiday. This is my kind of last sermon for, for three weeks. So um, uh, I feel relieved, and you may do as well. Yeah, I think it's really a significant one. And in one sense, if I could have chosen when to place this, uh, I would have put this right in the middle of September. Because I think what I want to talk about today is, is particularly significant. So this isn't an end of term, you know, show a video, school teacher thing. This is absolutely critical about where we're about. Um, and so we're in Nehemiah 5. Let me bring you up to uh, uh, speed uh, with Nehemiah. <clears throat> Nehemiah is a former slave cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, uh, and he hears that Jerusalem's uh, destroyed and uh, uh, its walls are broken down, its gates burned with fire. He weeps, prays, asks the king if he can go back and sort it out. Uh, and uh, he's into this kind of 55-day blitz of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Amazingly, they'd been in ruins for 143 years, 55 days. He's uh, working through it. And we saw last time I was up, uh, before we had fun in the park and PJ, etc., that, we, um, that he f- we talked about facing opposition. And he's faced massive opposition. And he's kind of envisioned and mobilized uh, God's people to kind of press on through. Uh, but actually, as it seems like the... Um, the, the journey is getting to an end, uh, what we find is the wall goes a little bit out of focus and, and the people's needs get really into focus. Uh, so that's where we are this morning. It's a long reading. So, so it's quite a long reading, but basically it's, it's what's happened as a result of the oppression of Jerusalem by the Persians and their uh, rulers. So let's read. It's quite a long reading, but let's go with it. Now, the men and their wives... Great to mention that. I think what's happened here as we read this chapter is the men have been building the walls, the women have been probably helping as well, and then the wives have come to a point as the man's come home from building the walls and says, look, this is critical. We're in a critical situation. The women are making a noise here, and that's great. Raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. That, that sense of that they're numerous is that most of the people in, uh, in the kind of first century and in the, we're in the fourth century BC lived in, in poverty. It wasn't like now. Most of the people lived in poverty. 80, 90% of people would live in poverty and one or two people would have money. And so they lived on this subsistence line and if anything happened, it would push them over. So there's the, 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 this, we're talking, this is the bulk of the people. We are numerous In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others are saying, we've had to mortgage our fields and our vineyards and our home to get grain during the famine. And still others are saying, we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. 
And then they say, although we're the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have been enslaved. You can read into that statement what you will. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards have been sold or belong to others. Then Nehemiah writes, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. Interestingly, he doesn't just accuse them straight away. He has a thinks about it and then realizes, no, the nobles, the wealthy elite are to blame. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we've brought, bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now, you're se- now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging on them, 1% of the money of the grain, the new wine and oil. It's a brilliant response. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they promised. I also shook out the folds of my robes and said, in this way God may shake out of of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep their promise. And so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, which means they agree. And praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. Brilliant. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, had placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence to God or fear of God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. And then it finishes, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each day one ox, six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me and every ten days an abundant supply of, all ki- of wine of all kinds. Sounds quite a good party. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allocated, allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. And then he finishes, Remember me with favour, my Lord, my God, for all I've done for these people. Father, we just pray as we look at this economic crisis, this meltdown in the society in Jerusalem in 445 BC. Lord, the parallels with our society are shockingly stark. Uh, the, The nature of our hearts is still the same. But Lord, I thank you that your word changed these guys and the was repentance and transformation and they said we're going to do it differently. Thank you for the way that Nehemiah led so strongly into this, opening up his home. And I pray, Lord, that you'd teach us to have compassion for the poor as a result of this morning. Amen.
Okay, so uh, I remember in, 19, uh, in 2008, at the heart of the uh, banking crisis, the then leader of the opposition, David Cameron, I, I'm not going to make political points, by the way, so if you feel I'm making a political point, I'm not. I'm trying to be as neutral as possible. If you get me on another day and another place, I'm very happy to make political points, but this is not what I'm trying to do here. There's a banking crisis that the then leader of the opposition, Dave, uh, David Cameron, gave a speech in which he used the phrase, broken Britain. And this is what he said, our mission is to repair our broken society, to heal the wounds of poverty, crime, social disorder and deprivation that are steadily making this country a grim and joyless place to live for too many people. And there's a massive flurry of comments about all this idea of broken Britain, and particularly the Sun newspaper uh, carried on lots of articles about broken Britain, talking about uh, crime and the banking system and all sorts of stuff, the whole range of it. And actually, the, there was, in 2011, it became a bit of a crescendo because there were, if you remember, there were, there were riots in, 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 the, in London and in other towns, and uh, this cartoon emerged. And it's this sense of, actually, right from the very top of society to the very bottom, that, that our, our society is broken. And you, wherever you stand in society, it's easy to point the finger and say, well, you know what your problem is, or you know what your problem is. But the problem is all of us. The problem goes right to the heart of it, to the heart of all of us. But interestingly, I found these statistics quite sobering. In 2014, I've got slightly different statistics up there, but... Uh, in 2014, the richest 5% owned 40% of the nation's wealth, or the richest 20% owned 60%. So you can 5% own 40, the next, uh, sorry, the next uh, 15% own 20. Yeah, do the maths, don't worry. Okay, and so it's interesting. And then what happens is the poorest 20% own 0.6% of the nation's wealth. So that means in Cheltenham, one in five people are in the richest 5%. You walk down the street, that every fifth person you meet in Cheltenham is in that richest percentile that owns, the, uh, that owns 40% of the nation's wealth. We've got the highest, fourth highest concentration of multimillionaires of any population anywhere in the country. 41 multimillionaires out of 120,000 people. But yeah, in Cheltenham, one in five, like everywhere else, are as poor as anywhere else, as poor as the 20%. So we've got one of the steepest social gradients in the country. In other words, the gap between rich and poor here is most profound, most broken. And I think that, that our society uh, it represents, we could find stats all over, but actually this situation that we find in Nehemiah is, is a very similar situation, that we've got broken walls and broken society. I've talked about the church is broken down and, and, and society is broken. And, and actually, I believe that one, they often go together. When the church does well, then, then society finds a, 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 a grace and a, a greater sense of, of care uh, and collectiveness, uh, a greater sense of equality. And so Nehemiah inherits a, a broken down society, a broken down wall. This picture is from, does anyone guess where it's from? little political quiz for you. It's not from Britain, obviously. It's from the Gaza, Gaza Strip. The, 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 uh, again, not a comment about Jews and, and, and uh, Philistines, but actually the, 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 the Gaza Strip is a bit like Jerusalem was. If you, under, if you saw a program on Wednesday about the, the, the kids of Gaza, shocking program, 
and you know the, the city's bombed, it's ruined in this sense, Jerusalem's bombed, ruined, it's war, and the people are scratching a living and trying to rebuild uh, their society. And, and, and in the midst of that, it's not that, that everybody hangs together to do it. In the midst of that broken society, you've got huge exploitation and greed. And what happens is famine pushes the whole society over the edge. So we've got this tottering society with rich and poor and exploitation around. And famine pushes the whole uh, population over the edge. And they say we are numerous. And in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. This, you could do this in the Ethiopian famine. People who live on the subsistence margins, when a famine comes, they need grain. And then what tends to happen is to get grain, they have to sell their fields. And often they have to sell themselves. And often what happens is that, that, that they're not only on top of that, they've got a, an absentee landlord who, who wants a share of the crop as well. And that's what you get in often, often parts of Africa. Thankfully, it's less and less. But actually, this is the situation that you get here. We must get grain. We're mortgaging our fields and vineyards and our homes to get grain during the farming. We had to borrow money to pay the king's tax. Now, it's interesting, in this situation, and I find this staggering, that Sambalat, who'd been the previous governor, he'd exacted, uh, uh, it says, uh, 40 shekels of silver from the people. I worked out what 40 shekels of silver, it's 160, what, sorry, 1,600 grams of silver. That was the taxes that the poor had to pay. These are the poor that are living on the margins, but yet they had to pay 1,600 kilograms of silver uh, in taxes, and that was just that went to him. There was additional taxes that went off to, uh, to um, Susa and the, and the capital city of the empire. And then what was that? He also demanded a share of their crops. He demanded some of their grain and some of their wine, and he demanded their agricultural produce. And so what happened was that because of this pressure, they, had to start, they started selling themselves into slavery. We've already subjected our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have become prostitutes. We are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. We've almost got this uh, kind of violent loan sharks um, exacting high interest. We've got people who can't pay. We've got sex trafficking. We've got slavery. This is what's happening to Jerusalem. And what we find, actually, is that that Nehemiah's responses should be what we know. When we know and we dig deeper beneath the veneer of what's happening in this town and in, in our nation and in the world, that when we dig down into the inequality and the poverty, we should be angry. You think about Nehemiah, that at first glance, though, that he would be quite indifferent. That at first glance, he's the sort of task-orientated kind of guy. He's the one who's going to get the job done, work hard. We're here to build the walls. We're here to build the teams. We're here to achieve the goals. You think that he's actually his aim is just to build the walls. It's almost like, um, you, you know, he's a bit like the Egyptian uh, pharaohs who wanted to build monuments to themselves. And you could say, oh, that's what he wants to do. He wants to build the walls because actually he cares about himself and his reputation. But actually, I think that when he hears about the poverty or when they come and complain to him, you see, you get the reason why he's building the walls. He's building the walls, and we've talked about this elsewhere, he's building the walls to keep evil outside. He's building the walls to keep exploitation outside and to create a safe place inside. 
He wants to create a, a place, Jerusalem, the place of Shalom. He wants to create a place of God's peace and God's blessing and God's goodness. And it'd be interesting to, to pause here at this point and ask the question, what is the church for? What is the purpose of the church? There should be some, a slide there. I don't know. Maybe, oh yes, here we are. What is the purpose of the church? And if we went round and asked you to fill in a questionnaire, you might say lots of things. You might say, oh, we love worship, or we love, um, we love community, uh, you know, preaching's okay, or, or we like the kids' work, or we, whatever. I don't know what, what, what you say about what church is for, or we love the fact that we can share our lives together, be disciples, or we love the fact we can be out on mission. And actually, but actually... That Nehemiah is doing the building the walls, yes, to create that community, yes, to create that sense of purpose, yes, to lift them out of poverty, but he's building the walls first and foremost to create a safe place for the poor, a safe place for people. That's what he's doing. He's building the walls for the very reason because people have, because uh, nation after nation has come in and exploited them. And I, I think that we can do worship and we can do preaching and we can do groups and community and tea and coffee and we can do all these things. And I'm speaking to myself as well as to you. But if we do less than care for the poor, are we really doing what church is about? I remember the, if you read in the, in the Bible, in uh, Galatians 2, there's a big discussion. Uh, there was a big discussion in the church where it said, should we, what should we do about uh, pe- uh, Gentiles? Should we make them live like us? Should we do circumcision? Should we make them eat the food that we have? What should we do about these people from the outside of the Jewish nation that are coming in? What should we do? And there's this big debate, this big theological debate, and it's so typical of churches get involved. I'm not against theology, but getting involved in this big theological debate and they have this council in Jerusalem, and they said... No, you can bring these people in. Don't ask them to fulfill any laws or criteria. It says, but, does anyone know what it says? But one thing we ask is that, do you, remember what, do you know what it says? You remember the poor. You remember the poor. About everything else that's important in church, yes, but we must remember the poor. One thing, says Peter, James, and John, those people who were the apostles, the leaders in Jerusalem, said to Paul and those people who are going out doing mission, don't forget the poor. Don't Forget the poor. And Nehemiah's rebuilding the damaged walls, not so he could stand back and validate himself, but so he could create a safe place for the poor. We've got on our membership day, we have five, what we call five imperatives. That's five things that must be done. And we had a really nice membership day with a few folks last Sunday. And what we said is we worked down the list. The further down the list we get, the more work we've got to do. And number one is love God. Number two is love each other. Number three is love our communities, which is both inside and outside. Love, uh, and then number four is love the poor. Number five is love the nations. We've got some work to do on this, in this church, guys, and I've got some work to do in loving the poor. Our, 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 our statement says, loving the poor. We embrace Jesus' mandate to demonstrate empowering justice. Say empowering justice. It's great, isn't it? Mercy, love and compassion to the lonely, lost and broken around us. People matter most. That's what we're trying to do. We must build, as we build this church, five years into the story, we must build this church, not with walls up to keep people that are difficult out, but with walls up that says, please come in and be part of who we are. 
We must do that. That's what Nehemiah was doing. And actually, when he hears that there's a massive inequality and he hears the mess in society and the broken nature of society, he gets very angry. And he says, he says, I pondered in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials and told them, why are you charging people interest? What you're doing is not right. You should walk in the fear of our God. Why does he use that phrase, the fear of our God? Because actually he wants to resonate what's been put in their Bible already. What's been put in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers about the poor. And one of the, one of the phrases in Leviticus, which is a, a book that Moses wrote, is if your countryman becomes poor, help him. Don't charge him any interest of any kind, but fear the Lord your God. He's saying, you're charging interest and that's forbidden. Why are you doing that? Why are you exploiting people? Why are you so concerned about yourself and your comfort and your wealth and you don't care about other people? It's not wrong. If you fear God, there should be a different narrative about your life. It says this in Deuteronomy, elsewhere, again, a book written by Moses, says, if there is poor men or women amongst you, amongst your brothers, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted rather than be open-handed. We are so easily tight-fisted. That's why it has to say don't be tight-fisted. He didn't say that to Jewish men and women wandering around in the desert because they're tight-fisted. He did it because our natural instinct and my natural instinct is to be tight-fisted. We care about ourselves. There's always a very good reason why I shouldn't open my hand. Oh, well, they're too numerous. If they have had less children in these countries, then we would open our hands. Or if, if, they did, if there wasn't this, or there wasn't that, or there wasn't the other, then we'd open our hands. But actually, God says to them, if there's anyone poor amongst you, open your hand, don't be tight-fisted. And don't be hard-hearted. The poor will always be with you, but therefore be open-handed towards the needy in your land. And this, in that later on, in the prophets, Isaiah 58, this, if this, those two get you, this one nails me, and I think, oh, Lord Jesus. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? You could say, is this the kind of worship meeting I'm after? Because we don't really do fasting that much. We don't tend to do without food very much. Although I think, you know, it's a good, you can do that. It's a good discipline. Is this the kind of worship meeting I've chosen? Only for Sunday, to humble yourself. Is this what you call worship? Just one day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of worship I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and set the oppressed free? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the stranger with shelter and when you to see them naked, to clothe them? Then your light, church, will break forth like the dawn on your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. Then when you call on the Lord, I'll answer you. If... You do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of the finger and the malicious talk. Oh, it's their fault if they really got off themselves. You know, those benefit scroungers, if they sorted themselves out, or those bankers, if they did that, they, they, you know, or whatever, we can point in 360, those people in the cabinet that went to Eton, these people, you know, we can point all over, can't we? with the pointing of the finger and malicious talk. If you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness and your night will become like noonday. It's there in the Bible for these guys. And he says, fear, don't you fear the Lord? 
And I think they know that this isn't just Nehemiah's preference about economic equality. This is God's heart for the poor, and they say yes. In fact, they don't say yes. What he says is, they were silent and could find no word to say. And I think sometimes, and and it's hard to preach sometimes these things, because how silent am I on this? Before God, do I pray about it? Do Do I do anything about it? I know it's in the Bible, but do I lose sleep about it? You know, you see, uh, you have comic relief, don't you? You see the video, you think, oh, quick, on your phone, 10 pounds, text, and then they text back and say, yeah, I'll gift it. Whoa, I'm really good, aren't I? And then you go to bed and you think, well, I must do something and forget. Or we get hope for justice in here, a year... Oh, what happened there? Sorry. Let's just keep you awake. We're doing it each week, the PA, boom. Yeah, you know, you watch these videos and you think, oh, I'm going to do something, I hope for justice comes in, you think, we must do something about sex trafficking. Or uh, Sarah gets up and talks about family space. Say, yeah, we will volunteer with family space. And you go home and you forget about it because that's what we do. We turned a blind eye to the 88,000 women involved in prostitution in the UK. 70% are under the control of traffickers. We wear our cheap Primark clothes or not-so-cheap clothes, but wherever you get them from, they're probably still made uh, probably in sweatshops. Not always, but we're unconcerned. Do we really care? that one in six children in the world, an estimated 1.5 million people aged between, kids between 5 and 18 are engaged in twa- child labour. Dangerous machinery, labouring in uh, semi-slaves behind sweatshops, hidden from view in plantations. I, I don't lose sleep about this. Even in our nation, this is the stats. Here's a picture, I'm not saying where it's from, but you might recognise it. Oh, lost my place. Okay, here we are. If you're poor, if you're born poor, you are more likely, much more likely to underachieve at school. If you're born poor, you're more likely to be, uh, have a child before the age of 16. If you're born poor, you're more likely to be involved in substance addiction. If you're born poor, you're more likely to hate your life and kill yourself. If you're born poor, you're more likely to go to prison. If you're born poor, you're more likely to have chronic disease. And if you're born poor, you're likely to live eight years less than somebody who's not. Now, you can do all your political analysis you want and say, well, if they, did, if they were more sensible about this or that or whatever. But we just need to put that away and say the fact is if you're born poor, you start with a much harder, harder chance to make it in life. And I know that one or two can, but the truth is the statistics are crushing. Six million adults and children in our country live like this. And when the Holy Spirit asks me, you know, I've just got nothing to say. I've got nothing to say. I can talk about a few good stories or a few good moments in my life where I've helped the poor, but most of the time... I've got nothing to say. I'm really much more bothered about my own ease, my own comfort, my own possessions than I am about the poor. And sometimes after a long silence where I know I've got nothing to say, where I've been inactive for too long, all I can say is, sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. Nehemiah summons the priests. I'm not a priest, but 
that puts me in the crosshairs and you as well because we're all priests and the nobles if you're wealthy and you are economically wealthy in this world and possibly even in this nation. The officials took an oath to do what they promised. They said, we're going to pay it back, we'll sort it all out. I was going to, and I thought best of it, I was going to get a flip chart up here and I was going to put, I promise, I promise to care for the poor. And I was going to get you to come up and sign your names. And I thought, I don't want to do that. But actually, that's what God wants us to do. He he, he says to those nobles, come here. Come and sign your name. Come and sign your name in heaven and say, I will do what I've promised. I will live differently in light of the poor. Sometimes we need to make a solemn promise to, to God to move from good intentions to actions. I don't believe anyone in this church doesn't care about the poor. The problem is we don't think about it and we don't know what to do. We got a little group together. Oh no, let me just do that. Uh, I'm nearly... Whew, yes. Okay, let me just give you a few other things. In fact, it does matter what we think about the poor. Let's bring it into the New Testament. Jesus said that the, the litmus test of our reality, of our trust in Jesus, is how we handle the poor. Here's this really scary passage from Matthew 25. I'm going to read it all. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's at the end, when he's going to judge it all, he'll sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered from him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats, who put their sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since creation. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you laughed after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When were you sick or in prison, and we went to visit you? The king replied, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Whoever you did for the least of these brothers, you do for me. Now, I remember going to uh, Vic's school, and they were doing a little work on this. Uh, as Vic's uh, an RE teacher, she's on a break at the moment, although it's not a break, having Jonah, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, they were doing some work on the, uh, the sheep and the goats, and, and one of the things that you can do with the sheep and the goats is say, well, actually, if you just do good deeds, you'll get to heaven. And that's one side of the argument. But one, one thing that we can do from our church tradition is say, oh, no, 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 we don't get to heaven based on good deeds, we'll get to heaven based on trusting in Jesus. But actually, Jesus is saying... If you are righteous, he says to the righteous on his right, if you are righteous, these things characterise us. This is the litmus test when you put the, pa- the paper, the litmus paper in, what colour does it come out? Are we bitter about the poor or are we soft to the poor? What are we like? And actually, we can argue it away, but our actions with regard to the poor do matter. That, that, that Jesus does take note. Jesus' his brother James writes this, What good is it? God first church. If someone claims to have faith but does no good deeds, can such faith save them? So brother, brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by deeds, is dead. You know, sometimes I walk past rough sleepers and I tell myself, well, nobody should sleep rough in our society because there's a health service and there's institutions and really they must have some kind of problem. And I kind of get myself off the hook from that. 
But actually, my dad was very different. When he, he died when I was 17, so I didn't see much of this. But he would, every time we'd walk, walk past the Ross Sleeper, he'd always stay and stop and chat. We lived in the north, so, you know, sometimes it's quite a long walk. And he'd stop and chat. <laughs> Mike, Sean leads as well. And, uh, and we'd, he'd often say, why don't you come home for dinner? And I, as kids, would say, what on earth are you doing, Dad? Why have we got this person in the house? And he'd say, what's it going to cost you, Howard? You're still going to get fed. And he'd come and we'd have these people for dinner. Sometimes they'd have a shower. And I think he did that all the time. And I think, why have I become a person? Why have you become people that just walk past? We gathered a little group from God First. I am landing this. We gathered a group from God First um, last week. And this is our flip chart. (laughs) Sorry, it's my writing. (laughs) And we thought, what can we do? What can we do? We, these are all the things we've talked about. What experience have people got and where could we help and whatever. And these are the areas. I'm not going to read them all. Go to the next slide, Zach. These are the areas that we said, look, this is where the need is. Actually, I will read them. Pregnancy crisis, mums and tots, kids club, youth, family space, sexual health, eating disorders, mental health, self-harming, substance abuse, single mums, debt counselling, sex trafficking, street passes, food banks, DIY garden helps, Christmas parcels, refugees, asylums, homeless, addictions, elderly lunches. Wasn't hard to come up with that list. Question is, how many of them are we actually touching at all as a church? Sorry? Family space does all of those. Yeah, you're not allowed to advertise your, your, your particular organization. I'll do that for you in a moment. So, what we decided is well, where can we help? Because, you know, we all feel at this point, I want to help. We might be saying, well, do I want to be inconvenienced? And Donnie Griggs, who was over from the States at the conference two weeks ago, said, if you want to walk like Jesus, it's going to inconvenience you. It's going to inconvenience you. What? I've only set aside a Wednesday a month to be involved in out. You know, it's going to inconvenience us. But these are, we thought, were where, you could work, where we could help. So Hope for Justice. Hope for Justice are a charity. We've tried to chase these charities down to find out specifically what we could do. And we've been... I've been singularly unsuccessful, <laughs> but we're going to come back to these. But Hope for Justice, uh, we had a speaker from Hope for Justice here about a year and a half ago. They are a charity that works with sex traffic women and uh, human trafficking and slavery. I know that some of you signed up that time to give a standing order, and I hope that's still going. Some of you people tried to get involved in praying. I'm going to ask Hope for Justice again. I'm sure some people in this church would want to be involved in that. Food bank. Um, Mike Neal went down to Elim Food Bank and did a bit of research for us. Uh, uh, Food Bank is at Elim. Basically, they need people who are going to be say, would they uh, give uh, some time, uh, perhaps once a week, to pop down to the local supermarket and when they're throwing out a load of food, to just drive it up to the food bank. Is that right, Michael? Not throwing out. Sorry. Sorry, thank you. Bulk connected. We're not giving past sell-by-date food to, to people. But when they've got food, the supermarkets give that. And also they need people who are going to uh, be willing to collect food from churches and, and do all that. And then uh, uh, Family Space, Sarah's uh, organization that does all these wonderful things. It's right here. If you want to help the poor, volunteer. If you want to speak to Sarah and say, look, I'd like to move from good intentions to actions, you can speak to Sarah. Or even CAP. I rang the guy from CAP. CAP is Christians Against Poverty. They do debt counseling and money courses. I rang the guy. At the moment, the CAP Center is run by... Uh, C3, is it? Or 3C? 
C3, that's the right, I always get the wrong word. C3, so Ali Bates, who leads that church, the guy that leads it is called Andrew Brown. And what they need is people who are going to be friendly. Will you be friendly to people who are in debt? So you don't have to be a debt counselling expert, you just go around with Andrew, Andy, I'm not quite sure what he calls himself, Andy, go around with Andy, and as he works through with a person who's in crushing debt, you just sit and be friendly, and then what you say is, oh, can I put back, maybe I bring some food parcel around, or just visit them, or just help them, and what you do is you just befriend them. And you know what? Lives get changed, from debt counselling, but also from befriending. So those are some of the four that we're saying, right, we're going to come back to that. And I would love you, I I didn't do it here, but I'd love you in your heart to sign this piece of paper and then when we say, look, there's something we want you to do, I want you to say, yeah, I I, I signed up to be inconvenienced and care for the poor. Let me just land this down then with one thing. Like every good leader though, Nehemiah doesn't just talk about it, he does something. He says, when I was appointed governor in the land of Judah, uh, neither me or my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. He's not taking a share of the crops. He's not taking a share of the wine for his own table. Because the people are starving, he takes responsibility. 150 Jews and officials ate at my table at my expense. Now, Nehemiah opens his home up to 200 Jews and foreigners every day. Every day. Now, he's probably got a big house and he's probably got a few cooks. But he makes it clear, he didn't do it out of the, 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 you know, the state pot, he does it out of his own pocket. And he says, if you read the text, he did it for 12 years. 12 years. I don't know, work out, 200 people times 7, maybe he had a day off on the Sabbath, I don't know. 200, let's say it's times 6, 200 people times 6, times uh, 52 times 12. Somebody could do it for me, but let's not. But it's a lot of food, a lot of people. I reckon it cost him millions of pounds. One of the things that you can all do right now is say, I'm going to open my home to people. I'm going to open my home to people. I think over the years, Naomi and I have had lots of people around our house. But Jesus tells you the kind of people that you should be good at inviting, because we're all good at inviting one category, but this is a category that we're not so good at inviting. Actually, who's been, who has been to our house for dinner? If you've been to our house for dinner, if you haven't, we'd love to invite you sometime soon. Give you for a coffee, maybe invite you for dinner. Naomi's going, oh no. <laughs> We're on holiday for two weeks, so everyone will have forgot my sermon now, you'll be all right. <laughs> but we'd love to invite you around for dinner because we, we want to do that. But Jesus says, do, who are the sort of people we want to invite for dinner? He says, when you have a dinner, don't invite your friends. Oh, that, Jesus, what? Or your brothers and sisters, your family, your relatives, or your rich neighbours. It's obviously in Cheltenham. If you do, they may invite you back and you'll already get repaid. When you invite a banquet or have a party or a dinner party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Gav's identifying himself there. (laughs) And Enos, yes, we must have you around. Although you cannot repay you, they will be paid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of the things that we can do that's so easy is that we can open up our homes. If you want to say, I, I want to have a heart for, of compassion for people that, that maybe uh, are poor, we can open up our homes. But actually, I think one of the poverties, and I'll really finish with this, one of the poverties in our society is that people are lonely. One of the, I, I just observed that there's loads and loads of coffee shops, but if you go to a coffee shop, one thing you do do, if you go with your friends, 
is you will sit with your friends, if you've got friends to go with. But if you go on your own, you don't sit with anyone else, do you? What you want to do is you want to sit on the sofa on your own. Imagine if you were sitting, imagine Mark's in a coffee shop, and, uh, and I came, well, I suppose it'd be okay, we could talk about football and golf, but, but imagine, um, <laughs> football, no, let's not, just golf. Okay, let's say I'm on a coffee shop, and I've got the sofa, imagine some randomer comes and plonks himself next to you. That is against all social conventions, isn't it? Because what we want to do is we want to sit in the coffee shop and feel the sense of, I'm at home on my sofa. Isn't it lovely? I'm in my sofa. The smell of coffee, and it's nice, and I'm on my iPad, uh, on my iPhone, because I don't really want to look like I've got no friends. I want to look like I'm busy. I'm waiting for someone. But somebody comes and sits next to you, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Because we've made it that we want to be in community, but we're scared to cross the line. So we go to coffee shops and ignore each other, together. That's what we do. And so I would say that actually we need to cross the line and say, actually, not necessarily going to sit next to somebody and talk to them, but that would be fun. Try that for a while. But to think, now we want to break that. Come and be in my home. Come, let's share life together. Come, let's be community together. Let's go out with Cap and befriend someone. Maybe you could invite them back. I remember I picked up a, a guy, because I'd, I'd followed my dad, I picked up a guy uh, who was hitchhiking, who was basically a rough sleeper. I, picked, I gave him a ride. He tells me his terrible story. Uh, I, I let him stay in my house. Actually, it was two of them. I let him stay in my, uh, two of them stay in my house, sleep over in my house uh, before I was married. And one of them stole a load of stuff. Took my bike, TV, computer. But not, the other one stayed... And actually, over a period of time, I was in Bath, became a Christian. Was it worth it? Was it worth getting exploited so he'd get saved? In fact, if they'd both stolen stuff, did I do the right thing? Now, I'm not saying be stupid, invite all kind of people into your house, but what I'm saying is, actually, sometimes we're just a little bit too safe. Where does this all come from? We've done this down, we're going to break bread in a moment. Where does all this come from? Where does this compassion from the poor come from? It doesn't come from Karl Marx. Say that again for all of you nervous blue voters. It doesn't come from Karl Marx. It doesn't. It it, it doesn't come from, you know, some kind of political edge. It doesn't come from subversive thing about we want to have some French revolution where everybody's got a nice house. We pull them into the town square and guillotine them. It doesn't come from that. This desire for the poor, this compassion and hospitality of the poor comes from, and you know where it comes from, don't you? It comes from Jesus. Let me read you two passages and then we're going to break bread. Jesus is the overflowing God who empties himself. It's not grasping and charging interest and exploiting people. He empties himself. He pours out himself on the cross for you and I. Paul writes, for you know the grace of God. That's God's riches given to you when you don't deserve it, when you're poor in your sin and in your rebellion. You know the grace of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he's the richest of kings. He doesn't use that kingship to exploit you, to put a heavy jackboot foot on you. No, he says he became, though he's rich, for your sakes he became poor. A bit like Nehemiah pours himself out, but so much more so. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. If we're going to help people to become rich... If we're going to help people to be changed, and I'm not talking about financially rich, but rich in relationships, rich in knowledge of God, then it's going to cost us. It's going to cost me. 
because it cost Jesus to bring you near. And then last, last verse. Jesus says to us, come into my family. Come and eat at my table. Paul writes, remember that at that time or one time, you were separated from Christ. Sitting on your own. Excluded. Without hope. Without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consequently, you're no longer homeless, but members of God's family. We're going to break bread now. We'll just pray and then we'll do that. So, um, I, I want us, as we break bread, to understand where, how far we've come from. You don't come here to Jesus' table because you were born in the right place. You were born with the right amount of economic lift behind you. You don't come here because you've lived a nice, neat life and you've never really done anything that would be considered foolish or stupid. But we all come in our spiritual poverty, in our sin, some even in our economic poverty, We all come to him empty-handed, to the open-handed God. So when Vic goes through, we're going to take and eat his life. We're going to drink his blood, this wine that represents his life poured out for us. But as we do, we're not just going to say, isn't it lovely that we've been brought to the king's table? We're going to say, as it says in that parable, Therefore, go into the highways and byways and implore others to come in. Lord, we feel silent in the midst of this. When the question is asked, we've got nothing to say. We admit that we've been far too comfortable with ourselves. But I pray, Lord, that you'd put this right in the heartbeat of who we are. That six months, 12 months from now, we'd look around and lots of us are bending down, getting our hands dirty, serving the poor, just because that's what you would do. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.